Hello, I'm Sarah Brennan and welcome to Leader to Leader. This is the podcast series where leaders in the third sector talk about their experience of what it's really like to be a leader today. Today I'm delighted to welcome my old boss, Lord Victor Adibawali, CBE, Chancellor of the University of Lincoln, Chair of NHS Confederation, Co-Founder and Chair of Visionable, Chair of Social Enterprise UK, Patron of Race on the Agenda, Chair and Leader of many other projects, seven or eight honorary degrees, the list goes on. Victor, thanks so much for joining us today. You're someone who's very thoughtful about leadership and you've even co-founded an organisation about leadership. What kind of leader would you say you are? Oh, crikey. Well, I'd like to think a human one. I'd like to think <laughs> that... Um, no, I mean that in the sense that I'm WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. I don't pretend to be superhuman. I like to think that I am thoughtful, considerate, focused. People can see that I have made an, in, an emotional investment in the outcome. I hope that I can inspire when necessary. I hope that people see that I have more than one tool in my bag of leadership, I think. And that I know when to get out of the way, basically. That's a really nice description. And you mentioned having an emotional commitment to the outcome. It's a really powerful concept, I think, and one that possibly lots of people don't think that much about. Do you want to say a bit more about that? When somebody asks you a question about your own leadership style, it's a bit like that Rennie McGree painting where the guy looks in the mirror and sees the back of his head. Oh, um, yeah. I just think I've given some thought to the debate about what's the difference between leadership and management. I guess my view has always been that leadership involves the emotional investment in an outcome and or an intention, and that differentiates it from management. Not that I value one higher than the other. They're both necessary in equal measure, but the emotional investment means that you are the tool that you're using. You see what I mean? You can't replace that with a computer (laughs) or a machine, not yet anyway. Whereas management is the allocation of resources, the most valuable being time. And as we see increasingly, management can be and has been in many cases replaced by algorithms that can do that just as well. Do you feel then that you've had a big emotional investment in the outcomes in the organisations that you've been Every time. chief executive of? Yeah. Every time. And has that been a key part of your success? Um, I don't know about success. Some people might argue with you about that. <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, I, I would argue that it's been the fundamental part of anything I would call successful. Yeah, I would argue that that's my modus operandi. Yeah, where I've been successful, it's largely because of, of the fact that I have given something of myself mm. to the process. When that you've cared, you've cared about the the outcome. It's... Yeah, the outcome is is you know the outcome the the intention has been my north star. Whenever I've led something, I don't want people to think that I'm kind of it can be mis misconstrued to mean a kind of emotional um diarrhea you know kind of thing what, <laughs> what what i mean is that you know i have given of myself in that people can see that i am focused on the outcome and invite the team to engage in that discussion about intention and then i'm really interested in the process that gets you there and creating the right scaffolding around that just looking back i thought Centerpoint was your, the homelessness charity was your first chief exec role. I think you corrected me on that one. You were, you, you had done it before that, but even at Centerpoint, you were, you were young, you were in your early thirties, a young 
black guy who is a leader in a environment of the charity sector that at the time was a pretty white leadership sector. And it was a big role with an organisation that had a very high profile around an issue that was very high profile. I'm interested to know how, I mean, for me, you were my boss. I just saw you as my boss. But what was it like for you? Uh, I didn't see myself as your boss. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. No, maybe I was bossy, but I don't think... Yeah, maybe I was bossy too. Well, as I recall, you were, and that wasn't always a bad thing. Um, I think, you know, how was it? I mean, it was, the baptism of fire, wasn't it? It was a difficult challenge because when I arrived, we were losing a few million a month. I think my first day was um, I had to go to uh, meet Princess Diana and persuade her to be a continuous patron. It wouldn't have looked good if I'd have come back and what an auspicious start. We've just lost the most famous woman in the world as our patron. And then I had to go on their programme and then explain youth homelessness. And then I had to come in and sit down with the finance director who told me that we were basically on the verge of going belly up. One of the first things I did was get the windows cleaned. <laughs> Nobody could see in. So, you know, we had these really dirty windows. Nobody could see in or out. And actually getting the windows cleaned, people noticed that, you know. A meaningful activity, in fact, yeah. Well, I, I thought it was actually meaningful. I let the, letting the light in and letting people see out, managing and leading in a goldfish bowl because, you know, nobody expected, um, and I think it's fair to say nobody expected me to come back with our patron and nobody expected a six-foot black guy to be leading such high-profile charity. I was thrust into the spotlight in a way, but while having to orientate a leadership team to the challenges that the organisation actually faced. I suppose when I look back on it now, I think that I had to model both management and leadership. I had to operate both tactically and strategically, and I had to do so publicly. And in terms of my practice, it taught me an awful lot about who I was and how I operate. And it taught me an awful lot about teams, both functional and dysfunctional. <laughs> it must have taken both a lot of bravery and probably a fair dose of bravado to see that one through. Well, I don't know about bravado. I mean, I, people think that, that leadership is a lot to do with bravado. I mean, I, I knew I could do it and I had a, an end goal in and the the issue, you know, what, what Centrepoint did the mission, the issue was about youth homelessness and um, and about young people that were born with as little as I, I had when I was that age or less. You know, my intention was, first of all, to ensure the organisation survived. Secondly, create a strategy that was inspirational for the people that worked there and for, more importantly, the young people. And thirdly, to build a platform that was relevant to young people as they were now. So we did do some groundbreaking things and you were, you were involved in some of them. We, we ran the first youth homelessness, youth employment centre, as I recall. We designed big chunks of the New Deal for employment. We did a load of things that actually placed young people, I think, in a, in a new light. So that sounds like actually having some clear goals, mm. vision is yeah, vision. absolutely critical, both to it you as a leader, true. but probably to leadership Ooh. in general. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's that saying, I don't know who said it now, I think it's a biblical statement, without vision, the people will die. Having a vision is related to intention. There's no, no point in having vision that aren't attached to values, there's no point in having values that aren't attached to a strategy, there's no point in having a strategy that isn't attached to operations, and people have to see and operate 
it has to see the alignment between them, what their role is in keeping that alignment. And that's interesting for your next role. So Easier said um, than done. <laughs> well, all of it is it always easier said than done, I think. But yeah. um, you yeah. went on to be chief executive of Turning Point, where you were for where you stayed for twenty mm-hmm. years almost, uh, which is an achievement in itself, I think. But mm-hmm. one of the things that's in, quite incredible is the growth that happened in that organisation yes. during your your tenure. Um, well, I mean, I think my vision at Turning Point was really. The thing about people with substance misuse challenges is that they all have mental health problems. And I guess my starting point was, how can we create the next generation of substance misuse services such that we could start making connections between substance misuse, mental health? We could start creating communities, recovery, and we could just change the perception. But more to the point that actually Turning Point had a very charitable model, which meant that you know, we were getting grants to deliver services and these grants were not necessarily, they didn't cover the cost, basically. So my, if I had a vision, it was to commercialise turning point services such that they were viable and capable of growth in a market where there was a massive demand for services that were more integrated. Which is a fairly radical idea of its of its own. It would appear to have been at the time, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so is this what drove or inspired you to change the organisation to become a social enterprise rather than a charity? Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that always irritated me actually about Centrepoint was the fact that, you know, here we are dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in society, but we're reliant on whether somebody put a pound in a, in a charity box or you know, left us some money in a will or, you know, we're begging, literally begging for funds to help with young people who are begging on the streets. It always seemed odd to me. And I used to say to some of our funders, imagine if it was your kids homeless on the street, would you rather they had a service that was dependent on whether somebody put a pound in a collection box or whether it was because there was a sustainable, viable business model that would ensure that your kid, if they were on the streets, got a service that was high quality and understood and paid for so I, I arrived at turning point with the view that you know what these people are very vulnerable and it was a fact still is that if you removed some of turning point services from many of our cities and towns on the monday you would notice the difference by wednesday afternoon should that be a service that's paid for by luck or should it be part of the infrastructure of public services run well run commercially financially viable so we can provide the very best services we needed to stop the charity thinking and the charity thinking was it was it's a bizarre thing in which people think that because they work for a charity therefore what they're doing is good and they don't have to worry about its viability or its value i took the view that actually it was everybody's job in turning point to worry about the you know viability and the, and the value and therefore the best model was not charity mm. it was actually social enterprise so it's actually a matter of principle in terms of the very basic and basis that the organisation is is founded on. Well, yeah, it was under threat. I mean, the fact of the matter is that at the time we would find the local authorities saying things to us like, well, you know, it's 500 quid to deliver £1,000 worth of services. And when we said, well, that's not enough, they'd say, well, can't you fundraise for the rest? So it was quite pragmatic. It was like, and some lots of organisations did and do fundraise for the rest. I don't think that's a very transparent or open 
way of funding services. But also, I think it's very, very risky because you might not be able to fundraise for the rest. Then why are you stuck with a below-par service that's not delivering or indeed a service that isn't meeting the need well? So for me, it was a, a matter of principle because of what I believe the most vulnerable should be getting in society. But also, it was commercially pragmatic. Yes. And it sounds like that also you felt that that changed or or shifted the focus of the culture of the organisation. To be honest, the culture of the organisation was one of the key issues for me. That the uh, There was a lot going on at the time within Turning Point. I think I had been their fifth chief exec in six years or something like that. So there was a question of what the organisation actually was, what it stood for, what was leadership for in the organization and my view was i still do believe and did believe that one of the key responsibilities of the, the chief exec of any organization is its culture and if you're presented with a culture that is dysfunctional then you are responsible for changing it and um, you have to think about how that might be done in a systemic way and it seemed to me the most systemic intervention i could make was to look at the business model Would you say that your leadership style has changed over the years? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. (laughs) Crikey. You'd have to ask the people, but I think it has. I'd like to think I'm an older, wiser person with more tools in my I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. um, uh, Yeah, but you're very kind, but I don't know. That's true. You have to support me. Um, And more uh, wisdom to apply to my practice as a leader and less ego, (laughs) frankly. Yeah, I like to think that I've learned some things over the years that are useful in what I do now and what I may do in the future. I think you've got to keep learning, haven't you? You've just got to keep developing. Yes, it's something about being alive, actually, isn't it? About yeah, yeah, learning. yeah, you're right. I mean, are there particular qualities that you know you have that have helped you? So, for instance, I would say, you know, you've got a definite presence. You People notice you, you know. Well, yeah, Um, you're the only six-foot black guy in the room. That's why. It's nothing to do with anything I bring. It's just a six-foot black guy with a dodgy beard. It's like, that's why. I don't think that's completely true, Victor. That isn't what I meant. You are. You have a physical presence, but you also have a presence about, about you. And... I'm sure you're aware of that. I'm not, and I honest. wanted to I ask if that's well, helped you. Are you I'm not? not? I mean, you know, people say it, but literally what I've said is that why what I assume it's about in most of the settings that I have practiced leadership. I'm the only black guy in the room, so of course I'm gonna be noticed. And everyone else is as white as a driven snow. They're not used to seeing a black guy actually take up the role of leader. You know, they're not used to it. It's not it's it's still very rare in this country for that to happen. And people expect well they don't know what to expect and and it's that sort of potential between what they think the experience is and what it might actually be that people might consider presence i like to think i'm intentional in where i am and what i'm doing and what i'm saying and who i'm doing and saying it with and that might give me some presence has that helped or hindered well sometimes it's helped and sometimes it's hindered you know um In order to be a leader, one has to have followers, and followership is a much understudied area. But I've noted that if people see you as, what's the word, charismatic, that can mitigate against them seeing you, taking you seriously, listening to you. It can create, you know, antibodies. It can create the sense of, well, you know, resistance, you know. It is very contextual, and 
leadership involves having more than one tool in your bag and understanding where it's necessary to be different. What does the future hold? Where does your leadership take you next? Well, I think it's less about position and more about system. I've observed the leaders and leadership over a long period of time. Indeed, I've studied it academically. I am intrigued by the way people perceive leadership in the West, the way it's defined. People expect you to move from one chief exec post to the other and this notion of control and grip. And I've noticed how complex organisations have become. And I guess, you know, I'm interested in system leadership much more than I am organisational leadership. Not that I'm saying that there's a difference, that the, the two things are connected, but I am interested in system leadership because it, it's more to do with complexity. And I think I'm interested in that and have become quite fascinated by it when I've seen it, which is leadership beyond boundaries, leadership across large, complex systems, coaching people and and working with other leaders in the, in groups. And now what, the things that I'm involved in are all very much about learning, but they're very much about what I'm going to learn in applying my leadership practice in this context or that context. The same themes still apply. I'm still very much interested in inequality and equity because I can't see how you can't be, frankly. It's a very odd, you know, how can you not be, given the world we live in? But I'm interested in, you know, testing my thoughts about leadership and what I've learned, which I guess boils down to probably four things, actually. The first of which is, um, I think control is a seductive illusion. And I think it's a bit of a salve to the anxiety of organisational life and leadership. I think that it is an illusion, generally. I'm not saying that the bigger the organisational system, the more an illusion it is. (laughs) if you see what I mean. Um, The second is that situational leadership is necessary. So that's the point about, you know, if there's a fire, you need, you know, sometimes you need to apply directional leadership. I think um, John Heron's work on this is quite important, I think, in this book. It's only useful if if your leader has a suite of, of interventions and an understanding of the context and how they might be applied. The third is what we've discussed, the leadership is the emotional investment in, in an outcome or an intention. And then the fourth is that I think I've come to understand that relationships are a fundamental fuel of leadership, the fundamental fuel of leadership interventions, learning and impact. I'm struck by people who think, leaders who think that culture happens by some kind of accident, you know, that they're not responsible for the relationships that they encourage, form, and that relationships really are about conversations aren't they They're about meaningful conversations uh, i just want to say it has been a delight uh, as ever to have the time and the opportunity to have the, this conversation and this chat with you thank you very much indeed oh, likewise thank you very much sarah take care now that's it from this episode of leader to leader I do hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please rate and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Next time, I'll be talking to Catherine Roche, the Chief Executive of Place to Be. This is a brilliant national organisation providing mental health support in schools across the UK. Until then, take care. <laughs>